Hello and welcome to Research for What, the podcast that discusses scientific research, its purpose and impact. I'm your host, Ron Bouvray. Each week, I will interview recognized thought leaders who share the same passion for science and research and invest the energy, time or money. We will talk about the challenges and opportunities for research. I'm also very keen to find out how experts define impact and what methods they use to measure it. Every week, I will ask the question, research for what? In this new episode of Research for What, I'm very lucky to spend some time with George Pepu, founder and CEO of VOW, a cultured meat company founded and operated in Sydney. In January 2021, VOW announced that it had raised $6 million in seed funding. And in November 2022, VOW announced again that it had raised nearly $50 million in Series A funding. In the last few years, VAR has put together a multidisciplinary team of scientists, technologists and designers, all working together to make, quote, sustainable food which is ridiculously good and irresistible. Showing what they can do and where they want to go, VAR recently made headlines by launching a woolly mammoth meatball. VAR is a unique company because it aims to commercialize lab-grown meat or cultured meat and therefore is moving never-seen-before research discoveries into the real world. I'm very keen to ask George how VAR was built and how important research is. George, thank you very much for your time today. Can I start with asking you a very basic question? Um, what is VAR? What do you do? What's your mission? Uh, so at VAR, um, we produce cultured meat. And that means we're producing, uh, we're growing cells from animals to produce food. This is a really interesting technology for a few reasons. The, the number one reason in my mind is you can start to make really high quality meat right near where people are eating food in electrified factories with the shortest possible supply chain. In 100, 200 years, I do believe this is going to be the dominant form of protein on Earth and on future planets that we colonize. But our whole approach at VOW is not just to use this technology to make the food that we eat today, uh, but to use this technology to make things we can't make any other way. In the long term, I believe meat is going to be very, very similar to breakfast cereal, where you don't go and buy a breakfast cereal thinking, I would like something which is a simple transformation of a corn grain, please. You think, I want Cheerios, and I don't really know what Cheerios are or what they're made of, but I understand what they taste like and how they help me achieve my nutritional goals. Same with Nutri-Grain, Fruit Loops, take your pick. Basically, anything in the breakfast cereal aisle is an abstract concept rather than description of an agricultural commodity. But today, the meat aisle is different. All the meat we buy is a description of an agricultural commodity in the form of an animal. And I believe 10, 20 years from now, we're going to buy meat and we're going to buy protein in the same way. So at VOW, we're building a library of cell ingredients from a wide range of species and cell types, and then combining those ingredients in different ways to create a range of foods that are better than meat in flavor and nutritional profile, in functionality, and ultimately in price. So I'm really keen to talk to you and ask you how you can you create something that doesn't doesn't exist yet and, and in fact, you know you talked a lot about technology so is yes. that a big big part of your business i mean we are we're absolutely a technology like we're a food technology business all in the servitude of making really delicious products and the brands that surround those products so when you think about what meat is, it's a combination of different cell types. It's mostly muscle, fat, connective tissue that have different proportions of molecules that 
when cooked in certain ways, transform into other molecules that create the flavor, the texture, the nutritional profile, and the function of that food. Everything from its bite to how it smells comes from the molecules that are present in that tissue. By growing cells from a similar tissue in a very, very precisely controlled environment, we can control a lot of those characteristics much more tightly than growing inside of an animal. Ultimately, the muscle in an animal has a job, and that's usually keeping the animal upright and moving around. Uh, for us, we don't have to grow tissue that's functional, so we can really architect, design, and engineer it to be anything. We can change the environment that we grow it, the process we use to grow it, uh, the final uh, formulation, uh, even the way it's packaged and served, uh, to really give any set of characteristics that you want. In the same way that you can mix different grains together to create something which is has a distinct proposition from any single grain, you could mix different cell types from different species together to create something which is distinct from any one animal or anything that one animal could produce. To give you an example, you could mix fat from fish, which is loaded full of omega-3s, mm. with, say, muscle from pork, uh, and then you can start to create, uh, sort of mix in these different characteristics, bring together these different profiles from different animals, and create something that's better than any one animal could ever produce. So how... Did that start? I mean, do you wake up one day thinking I'm going to mix, you know, fish cells, uh, fish fish fat cells with, you know, beef muscle cells? How did the idea come about? <laughs> so I was uh, I was working or running a startup accelerator called Grow Lab at Cicada Innovations in Sydney, which was or still is a deep technology uh, startup incubator, and. GrowLab was exclusively focused on working with food and agriculture companies and food and agriculture startup companies and supporting them in the earlier stages of their growth, um, really from idea through to first round of funding and first customers. And I, over about three years, I worked with 17 different ag and food tech companies in everything from crop monitoring to animal health to sustainable packaging to vertical farming. And one theme that kept coming up every time you dig really deeply into the food system is this problem of protein. How do you provide protein in a way which is not intensive of land, intense, oh, sort of using a huge amount of land or intensified into very, very small spaces, which are bad for animals, uh, bad for public health and terrible for global emissions. And so you run out quite quickly of your options. Uh, we are eating more meat every single year. In spite of veganism and vegetarianism, 2021 was the had by far the most meat consumed on this planet, beating out 2020, which beat out 2019, which beat out 2018, which beat out 2017, and you kind of get the picture from there, is we're eating far, far more meat. And we have two options to do that, either clear more land, which is bad, or squeeze more animals in the same space, which is also bad. And so we as humans are not going to change that. We're not going to stop eating more meat. As the world gets wealthier, the billion or so people that are vegetarian but not by choice are going to get wealthy enough to be able to afford meat. And so that problem is not going away. It's only going to worsen and the consequences in terms of emissions and pandemics are going to increase unless we find ways to make better products than animals can. And so I spent a long time looking at all the different ways that you could make meat more efficiently and divided that into kind of precision fermentation uh, which is what companies like Impossible and Perfect Day do to create meat and dairy products into plant-based products uh, like V2 and Fable, uh, which use uh, sort of transform plants into meat-like products. Um, and then cultured meat, which you grow the same tissues but outside of animals. Looking at each of those spaces deeply, 
precision fermentation and plant-based are really fantastic technologies, uh, but ultimately they're limited by uh, sort of going to these extreme lengths of processing to make something which is fundamentally not animal tissue resemble the experience, taste, and nutrition of animal tissue. Cultured meat has an enormous number of problems required to scale it up, required to commercialize it at all, uh, let alone do it at any kind of price point that makes sense. If those problems can be cracked, and I'm certain that they can, then uh, you have the most compelling option. You get real animal tissue with all of the molecules that make animal tissue so delicious and so nutritious, without anything that makes it bad, without the land footprint, the land clearing, or the intensification of animal agriculture, and all of the consequences that come with that. And so if it can work, it is the holy grail. Mm. Once I convinced that cultured meat was the way things, you know, way the world was going, I spent a bunch of time talking to different founders in the space and understanding the perspective. And it became really clear that there was this sort of vague idea that, well, first we make chicken and beef and pork, but then in the future we can sort of customize meat, make it better, make it different. But everyone was focused on, on these replica products which is a really, really difficult challenge that has a relatively certain market because each of us that eat chicken, beef, or pork are experts on what those taste like. And making something from cell culture taste exactly the same is, is, a, is a shockingly difficult food science challenge in and of itself. And so it felt like there was this opportunity to build a company specifically focused on expanding the palette of ingredients and handing those ingredients to people that are creative and curious and understand how humans you know, exist and think and make decisions as a way of creating not just one or two replica products, but dozens and dozens and eventually hundreds and hundreds of different products and brands that each serve a particular group of consumers better than animal meat ever could. And no one was building that. No one was building a company that was specifically focused on out-competing meat, only on changing the way it was produced. Uh, and that to me is the biggest and most impactful opportunity on the planet right now. And if no one else is going to do it, then I guess we had to. So they, you, are you talking about other species beside chicken, beef and lamb? And, and Yes. So we work across about 20 different species. So you were in the right environment to be exposed to issues and to identify a problem, to find a problem. I'm really keen, and we, we talked about, you know, you not being in research or you not calling yourself a, a scientist, um, and we can talk about this again, but I, I'm keen to talk about then, you know, then once you've got a problem, how, what, what's your path to um, delivering a solution? How did you go about doing that? So, yeah, it's a really, it's a really big question. I think once we... Once um, myself and my co-founder, Tim, were sort of exposed to the opportunity in cultured meat and we had this broad idea around where the cultured meat sector was going to go, then there became a set of assumptions and hypotheses that existed. And some of those are really simple and it was just replicating things that are done in every cell culture lab around the world, which is like, can we grow cells at all? Can we take a biopsy and isolate cells and grow enough and taste them? And that's, you know in cell culture terms, trivial. And then beyond that, it was like, okay, well, can we do that across multiple species? How different and how difficult are multiple species? And then you start to build up to more significant problems of, okay, well, how do you get over the Hayflick limit? How do you get cells that can divide enough times? So what are the different approaches that we can use then? Okay, well, if you can get over the Hayflick limit, how do we then scale them up? What are the different options of systems that already exist or do we have to invent that? And then from there, it becomes a, okay, well, if all of that is true, then how do you make it cost-effective? What assumptions to need to become true? for this to be possible at scale and cost effectively. And so it was almost just 
start by getting a deeper and deeper understanding of what would need to become true for us to build a, you know, us to build a company that can have a positive impact on the planet by feeding billions. And then almost working backwards to say, who do we need to have on the team? Who do we need to hire? Where do we get the capital from to be able to deliver on this? Uh, and so it was the, it wasn't static. It wasn't sort of understand the opportunity and then write down a project plan and start one step after the other. It was sort of have a vague idea of the direction of where things are going, learn to tell a story that is compelling enough for people that are technically capable, for people that have the capital available, and for people that uh, you know can influence the way humans are going to eat and think about food in the future, create a story that compels those people to join sort of our crusade uh, as a way of making that progress. There's no way that, you know, even our early team of five or six people could even solve a fraction of those problems. And we have a team of 50 people, the majority of whom are scientists and engineers working on the underlying research and development. There's still much, much more to do. And we're going to end up ultimately with, I think, hundreds of researchers working on different parts of this problems over many, many years to create this new category of food. Um, so it's not, it's definitely not a sort of simple journey and it evolved and changed significantly. And we made many stupid assumptions early on, but what defines us is not how we started, um, but our ability to learn and our ability to maximize that learning rate along the way. And then our ability to scale that into a company and a team and a culture. So this is quite different from what I see in particular starting, what, what you know, the sort of research or commercialization of research that starts in academia, right? Often yes. they start with capabilities yes. and they try and fit their capabilities and their knowledge into a problem. Yes. You went the other way around. You, you started with a problem and built your capabilities and knowledge around that. Yep. And, and there is something, um, there's almost, especially when you're hiring people out of research, you're almost implicitly doing what you said, which is you hire someone who's an expert in the field. And our chief scientist is an expert in muscle and muscle stem cells. And so a lot of his knowledge and a lot of his know-how and therefore a lot of the ways he looks at solutions is coming from that world. And it became so much more leveraged and so much more powerful as his, uh, his team of researchers grew with people from more and more backgrounds that team started to be able to bring in more perspectives and it became, it opened up new options and new ways of approaching problems, which became more and more exciting. But back when I used to work briefly, I uh, worked at UTS in the research office and um, the way I described commercialization, much to the disappointment of the rest of the people in that office was uh, universities, <laughs> university commercialization is make something no one wants and then wander around until you can, ha you can drop it on the foot of someone who happens to need it. Um, it was incredibly haphazard and almost felt like luck if there was a commercialization opportunity. But I say that sort of tongue in cheek, basic research that Australia does is absolutely critical. And you can't build a company like VOW without that basic research. We rely on everything from bioinformatic techniques that have been developed by that sector through to biomaterial breakthroughs, through to the metabolomics and lipidomics and the multiomic approaches that have been developed by the research sector with no particular problem in mind. And that is not something I say no particular problem in mind, very sort of um, dismissively. Often those are applied to important discovery problems. Um, but those techniques being developed by the research sector without commercial intent are hugely commercially valuable. The knowledge of our team that has come out of the research sector is hugely commercially valuable, even if they you know, even if they're not going to create that commercial value within universities. They are the training grounds and should be the training grounds of the brightest minds that can solve the hardest problems. Do you remember what the first experiment you did was? Uh, so 
back in May of 2020, uh, my co-founder Tim and I went out to a farm uh, and we got a biopsy of a kangaroo and then we went out to an abattoir and got a biopsy of a pig. We couldn't take biopsies from live animals because of a, a complicated regulatory issue we had stumbled upon. And then we went back to the lab and we were working with a couple of really wonderful young scientists, one who was a PhD student and one who was working at a pharmaceutical company called Nuclone. And we attempted to isolate muscle stem cells from these two biopsies. And we had... We were trying to do this technique, which involves single fiber isolation and requires a lot of specialized equipment. And we had watched one video about it online. And we had this microscope in the biosafety cabinet <laughs> trying to make this technique work. And it was an unmitigated disaster. Miraculously, we got some cells out of that. And then we started to understand some of the growth dynamics of them using no suitable equipment. We're literally just looking at them under the microscope and being like, I don't know, it looks like there's more cells. I guess they're growing. Yeah. It seems like there's more cells in this one than this one. So I guess this condition is slightly better. And so it started off with really rough, but very fast uh, sort of science to understand the basics. Then once we had raised some money and we brought on our chief scientist, who's a guy out of Melbourne Uni called Dr. James Ryle, we then started to very deliberately build up the capability in things like high-throughput proliferation assays in techniques like single-cell RNA sequencing to understand population diversity. And then that started, those capabilities and those sets of data started to lead us to a much deeper understanding of the cells that we were working with and how we could utilize those cells more effectively, how we could grow them in larger volumes at larger scales. And that then unlocked a huge set of new research questions around, okay, well, how do you make them taste good? If you can grow a lot of them and they taste bad, then that's not useful. Uh, how complex do we want the process to be? Can we simplify the process? Well, what if we could do this that simplifies the process and sort of building on the set of capabilities that we're building internally, but the pressure and the very short timelines that we need to operate on and deliver milestones on means that we can't keep pushing into a particular problem for very long. And so if something isn't working relatively quickly, we need to change direction and try something else. And so I think one of the biggest differences between how we operate uh, sort of commercial obligations and outcomes is we are going through a huge number of different techniques to solve a problem. And we're very, very open-minded about the approach. There's no commitment to any particular approach. Uh, in one of the biggest technical problems we're working on today, we're trying three or four different approaches in parallel and we'll continue to do so and you'll probably add more as we come up with them because we know that trying a lot of things in very, very quick succession has delivered us the best outcomes in the past. Uh, and that's not something that you can typically do if you're operating in a very highly specialized field in research, uh, because you are inherently approaching that with a certain set of capabilities and expertise to go to an extremely deep level within that problem, as opposed to having a particular commercial outcome or milestone or obligation that you need to throw any technique at to try to solve for. This is really cool. And actually, it sparks two questions. I mean, you're generating so much data, so much knowledge there. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> so what do you do with all this knowledge and data? You know, in, in academia, it'd be simple, right? Yeah. We'd, we'd publish a paper and, and we'd share this data with a community of colleagues. Are you interested in this at all? So we are going to start publishing this year, but we are, we're publishing research for, very, for um, some very different reasons. And those two reasons are, one, to attract the best scientists in the world by being transparent about the quality of our science. We invest a lot in and do very, very high-quality scientific research. The second is, I almost call it the Theranos effect, where it's like there have been several fraudulent companies that have claimed scientific breakthroughs they didn't have. And we want to make sure we're never being doubted or asked those questions by being transparent and open through peer-reviewed journals where it doesn't hurt our commercial goals. So for us, publishing is 
an important part of being transparent and open and demonstrating the integrity and transparency of our company. Internally, transparency is a huge, huge value of ours. And we want to extend that externally with our science. There's a massive amount of data that we accumulate internally. We've had to build, we have a lot of engineers. We have, um, I think a team of engineers is now almost 10. Uh, we have a lot of software engineers that have come out of the tech sector, work for some really big companies like Atlassian, as well as a lot of hardware companies and uh, sort of automation companies. They help us capture, uh, systematically capture the huge amount of data that we're creating. Every cell culture, no matter what it's in, has a unique barcode and ID. And all the analysis we do on that is then tied back to that unique set of culture conditions, the cell line, the environment, and the media that it was grown within, so that we can then start to analyze that in a whole range of different, uh, sort of using a whole range of different techniques. That is something that I believe we're going to start opening some of uh, the data that we're learning about cell types and different cell types and different species, the whole genome data and the transcriptome data uh, to organizations for whom that's relevant. Um, so we're talking to some researchers at Sydney Uni and have been for quite a while about sharing some of our marsupial cell lines with them for some conservation research work. Uh, we were talking to some people in the conservation community more broadly about extending that quite a lot um, because we're really good at creating primary cell lines of different species they need primary cell lines to be able to test some of their conservation techniques, especially biological and immunological conservation techniques on. And so that's the way I kind of see us interfacing and opening some of this work up. But that is ultimately not our core focus. Our core focus is delivering on really, really high quality and really delicious food. And, you know, it's my job to make sure that we're myopically focused on that. And everything we're doing that's extraneous to that is helping us achieve that core goal. Is being a, a commercial startup, you know, an issue with the research that you can do? I think, I don't think it's an issue with re, the, any of the research. It's just that all of the research has to lead to an outcome that's relevant commercially. We have explored a number of different avenues that are really interesting that we've had to stop and pull back from because it ultimately doesn't advance our product and commercial goals. Um, right. There will come a time I believe where we'll be able to do some more of that exploratory research, more of that long-term research, which may not pay off for five or 10 years. But right now we're a pre-product, pre-commercial company. We need to demonstrate traction towards those things and demonstrate that we're able to create and utilize, or sort of create value and then capture that value and create enough value to justify the continued investment in some of those longer-term, higher-risk potential research opportunities. So there is this sort of tension where Everything we do has to be relatively short term because we only have as a company a couple of years of life at any given moment. We can't afford to invest five, 10 years out when we, when we could die in two years. I want to ask you, has research always delivered for you? No, God, no. Um, but there's, it's, um, I mean, no, nothing we do always delivers. Um, if, you, if you sort of think about VOW as a company which has underlying technology, which is our underlying science and engineering, uh, production and scale up uh, sort of manufacturing, as well as uh, sort of product development and sort of customer discovery. All of those areas have huge amounts of failures. And there, is, there have been many, many times that we've thought a particular approach or a particular discovery was going to be a huge unlock and it hasn't been and we've had to walk back and try something else. I would say the failure rate in research is, is very, very high by virtue that we're doing things that have never been done before. If it had been done before, it wouldn't be research and it wouldn't have a high failure rate. But in order to you know, create a world-changing technology company is you have to do things which haven't been done before and that's inherently high failure. But 
that again is a very core part of being a startup. Whether you're building a software company or even an e-commerce company is lots of high failure, high risk activities tend to deliver the most value. If you're just following a playbook and doing nothing new and taking no risk because you have no, you, you're adding nothing as a company and anyone can come along and do the same thing. And research is one of the one of the axes that we frequently fail on and learn from. And that's ultimately what defines us is how quickly can we learn? How quickly can we grow? How quickly can we change and evolve our approaches and techniques? Not does every experiment and every project yield a wonderful outcome that solves a commercial or a business problem. Are you worried about competition and IP and all of, you know, these sort of things that some people can no. be very worried about? <laughs> <laughs> the short answer is no. Um, there is nothing slows down progress more than arguing about IP. Yeah. And now I, I'm, you know, we're running a commercial company. We have we have investors that are expecting a return, so we absolutely have an IP strategy, IP policies, and approaches to that. But we're very, very pragmatic about when and how we implement those. Most of our development is done internally, and so IP is really straightforward. But, you know, talking to our IP lawyers and IP litigator and all of the people which help inform that strategy and help us build these policies, they say, well, you need a lot of secrecy internally. You, you can't make this data open and shared amongst the team. That's a huge IP risk. And it's like, well, you know what's a bigger IP risk is we don't share transparently and we don't make the discoveries which allow us to be a commercial business. It doesn't matter how much IP we create if we never... We're never able to add value to the world and capture that value. We're never going to be a business. We're going to be, you know, another failed startup. And so we do have IP approaches. We do care about IP, but only as far as it allows us to move really quickly towards long-term goals. Only when it has an enduring value over decades does IP become worth considering. And then only if it doesn't damage our culture and our ability to be transparent and open and share those learnings internally. Interfacing with universities and even some third-party uh, so contract research organizations, uh, there is an assumption that every single research project is going to yield the next Wi-Fi and going to be worth billions of dollars. And therefore, I'll tell you a story. There's a certain uh, research commercialization guy at Melbourne Uni who was working with James, who's now our chief scientist. And this particular guy I was trying to negotiate with another culture meat company before we started talking to him. And the terms they offered were horrendous. It was basically you pay for everything and then we can choose to license you the IP on our terms. I think that was basically the gist of it. But this attitude is so common. It's like we are the universities and we hold all the value and knowledge and smart people. And what are you going to do about it, peasants? Um, that company ended up literally not, not starting and not going anywhere as a result of incredibly short-sighted and very, very commercially tactless uh, negotiations around IP, which didn't even exist yet, let alone have value. And the consequence of that is James joined Vow full-time as a chief scientist. He brought all of that knowledge and all of those ideas to a company like ours, rather than keeping that value within the research sector, rather than, the, rather than his group becoming a sort of training ground for cultured meat scientists or muscle-wasting scientists or other muscle expertise, he's now working at VOW and leading a much larger scientific team and a much larger scientific strategy commercially, as opposed to within the university sector, as a direct consequence of short-sighted and naive approach to the value of IP that didn't even exist. 
I know you can't speak on his behalf, but you know, <laughs> you, you, you get a sense for what it, whether it's very different for a scientist to work for a startup rather than working for academia. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> uh, him and I talk about this almost routinely, uh, almost every week. It's, I think it, it couldn't, I honestly didn't think it could be more different. <laughs> There's, we were joking over lunch today that working at Vow is kind of like that comic, the, the it's fine comic. And you know, there's a dog sitting in the burning house with a cup of coffee and just says, this is fine. Um, and that's what being in a startup feels like all the time. Yeah. Because you, as a company, for us to succeed, there are areas where we need to be getting like A pluses. We need to be really like top of the class. And then everything else that isn't those areas should always be on fire. And so everything from like inventory to like onboarding processes to recruitment to like the finance operations almost constantly on fire, but the area that really matters for us, which is the underlying technical and product development, that's where we need to be getting A pluses and you know, nothing else, really nothing else matters. And we should be getting C minuses and everything else. And that's a very, very different environment. The other thing which I know James and I have talked about quite a few times is just the, uh, the sort of pace and the urgency and the risk tolerance. Um, it's just like, you know, we do it and it doesn't work. We can just walk away from it. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter for us whether it's statistically significant or reproducible. It's like, do we feel like we've learned what we need to from this? Do we need to repeat it to get that learning? And the answer is usually no. Um, and that was it's something that James and I talked a lot about in the early days of like, how, how much do we, how confident do we need to be in something to either move forward or move away from it? And the answer is not very, as long as we create a culture and create an environment for the team where we are comfortable leaving things behind. We are comfortable dropping things and, and not trying to ensure that every result is valid um, if it doesn't help advance the company as a whole. Uh, and that certainly, that certainly took some adjustment, but you know, James is an absolutely extraordinary scientist with two decades of a really, really impressive research career. And he's also incredibly adaptable and he has learned and he has grown an unreasonable amount in the last couple of years. And I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. I suspect he would probably struggle to go back to the pace of academia after the pace that we've operated at together over the last two and a half years. This is really cool. And it's got to do with the skills. Or is it possible for someone, for one mind, you know, to, to collect all the <laughs> skills that are needed to run the startup? And that includes, you know, your partners, maybe maybe investors. Do they need to understand your research? Do you have to work with a researcher that's on top of, you know, their game? And can someone do many things in the startup or do you actually separate the, the roles? So it depends on the stage. At the very earliest stage, everyone needs to be a generalist. There is no specialization. And this has been, you know, I'm, a, I'm an expert generalist. I'm bad at a lot of things. Uh, and, you know, there were times where I was in the lab and doing a terrible job of it. There have been times where I've been doing construction and doing a terrible job of it. There's been times I've been doing finance and doing a terrible job of it. Early days, everyone has to do everything. Um, you can't really specialize uh, because there is so much that's unknown about every part of the approach. Does that mean I've, that everyone can do it? I think no is the short answer. Yeah. To be able to build a startup, you need to be incredibly resilient, risk tolerant, um, flexible, and be really, really unbelievably, unreasonably open-minded to new ideas because you need to just be this learning machine. Inevitably, every founder, every early team member is utterly wrong about how things are going to work. And one of two things will happen over time is you will hold on to a wrong view and end up being spat out by the company or killing the company in the process, or you have to give up that view and learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something which really all of the researchers on our team and especially James joining us so early are really comfortable with that open-mindedness and really comfortable 
you know, sort of giving up on something to accepting that that is not the right approach and then being willing to move on to the next thing and upskill really, really quickly in that. There's a really interesting model that um, the team at Main Sequence and especially Phil Mall have been uh, leading called Venture Science, where they, they typically have a group of researchers, a industry partner, and then they create a company that's focused on solving a problem. V2 Food was one of the first. They also have Nourish Ingredients. I guess Nourish is probably not actually a venture science one. Eden Brew is another one, which is focused on uh, precision fermentation for milk production. And so they basically qualify the opportunity space and qualify the product space by having a commercial entity that would be the distributor of that product. They then have the expertise and usually a proof of concept from the researchers that are involved, whether they're on the team or not. And then they bring main sequence, which brings sort of pure venture capital funding and a lot of networks through them. And that's a really interesting model. And what I've seen through some of the companies at main sequence that have been founded by researchers like Nourish, those researchers have become really, really great and effective founders. There are other groups where the researchers have remained in their institutions and have not joined those companies. And that's also worked really quite well. I don't think a background in research dictates that you either are or aren't going to be a good founder. I think it's, you know, it's a, there are, or a good founder or early team member. There are many people in academia and in research that are very, very capable of that. And there are many who, for whom the uncertainty, the ambiguity, the risk and the constant change is not an environment that they're effective or enjoy working in. Um, and that's fine as well as we don't, you know, not everyone can be in a startup, otherwise nothing would be operated. <laughs> there'd be nothing, there'd be no anything to actually operate because everyone would be busy starting and making mistakes and learning quickly instead of actually building and operating. Hey George, it's, it's been really cool. I've got one last question. It's very quick. Sure. If you had a magic wand, what would you do? In general? Yeah. I'd have a very large scale, <laughs> I'd wave the magic wand and have a very large scale facility producing lots of different products I could be selling. And I'd <laughs> skip the next few years of R&D and get to the really, really fun part, which is like scaling the business across different markets and geographies and like really getting the technology to the point of maturity. But then I get to miss all the fun stuff that we're doing now. I'd probably, I don't know. I don't know what I want to change. Nothing. If I could wave a magic wand and change something about the research sector in Australia though, I would completely eliminate IP negotiations from working with the research sector. I think some universities have done a really good job of this. Uh, I've seen uh, places like UTS and uh, UQ and um, Monash especially just being really open-minded and understanding this collaboration is going to be really helpful and really valuable. And we as a university can learn a lot from that. And we haven't got bogged down into IP discussions. And there's been other universities which have turned around with just horrendously non-commercial terms on very, very slow timeline. No, thank you so much. That was fantastic. It was really cool. Thank you. My pleasure. It's, um, uh, this is something I've been sort of, I've obviously been doing for the last few years and have been thinking a lot about and feel very strongly about. So very happy to uh, sort of share that and express that. Thank you everyone for listening to Research for What? To connect and find more information about this episode, check out researchforwhat.com. Until next week. Research for what?